Hey guys, Drew here again, uh, because unfortunately we have had two weeks now in a row with some technical difficulties on our recording. Uh, this one, unfortunately, I cannot blame on my daughter. This one is entirely on me because I recorded uh, the lesson this last time I was the teacher and I totally forgot to record the very first half of it. It wasn't until about midway through the lesson that I realized I had not even grabbed like the microphone. And so... Uh, I am going to once again give you a, a little bit of a summary of what you missed, and we're going to try our best from here on out to get them all recorded. Uh, this week, we talked about literary context in, in our time together, and this is a, a really big topic and one of my favorites to be able to talk about when it comes to how to study the Bible. We started our time with like a brief little exercise. I gave everybody in the class just uh, uh, three phrases. Uh, those three phrases were this, that's a pretty nice club, give him a hand, and I've got a date. And then uh, we asked everyone in the class to try to come up with as many different possible meanings for each of those phrases as they could. Uh, and it was uh, a lot of fun to get to hear people kind of put their heads together and come up with some pretty creative uh, possible meanings for each of those. The point that basically we were trying to make, though, is that even though that's a pretty nice club, could actually have, I think we determined something like seven or eight different meanings. Uh, the way you know what a person actually means when they say those words is by context. It's by knowing what's actually taking place when they say those words. It's by listening to the words that come before or come after. Or if you're reading, it's by reading the words that come before and after. And this is really true of all uh, words and phrases. Uh, the word set, S-E-T, the English word set, has in the Oxford English Dictionary 464 different definitions. Uh, the word run has, uh, New York Times put an article about this uh, several years ago, that it has 645 different definitions. Well, how do you know when you hear the word run, which of the 645 different definitions uh, someone is using? And the answer is pretty easy. You just listen to the rest of the sentence. You listen to the rest of the paragraph. It is the context that helps you understand those things. Uh, a quick little review, just looking back. Uh, Scott Irwin taught our first two weeks, and, and he talked about the three main steps of Bible study are these. Number one, observation. What does the text say? What are the words there and the phrases, and how are they connected? Uh, number two, interpretation. What does the text mean? And then number three, application. How do we live this out? And so we, we talked about this idea that when we study the Bible, we're not just sitting around going, well, this is what the text means to me. Uh, what does it mean to you? Oh, that's interesting. Well, what about you over there? What, what does this seem to mean to you? Uh, the truth is that's not the point of the Bible is to figure out what it means to Drew. Uh, the, the, the main thing that we're looking for is what we call the author's intended meaning. What did Paul mean when he wrote it? What did Matthew mean? mean when he wrote it. And there may be multiple ways to apply it depending on your context. Uh, the, the, the command, do not steal or thou shalt not steal, there's only one meaning, and that is you can't steal. You don't steal. It, it can't also mean, well, sometimes steal, right? There's only one meaning. But the application may be different for different people. For some people who struggle with actually stealing things from stores or from people, it, it means literally don't steal, 
Uh, for others, they may read that and the Holy Spirit may use that to, to convict them of, of cheating on their taxes. And so there's a different application for this same rule. Uh, we're pursuing, though, the author's intended meaning whenever we read. Today, what we're going to talk about is finding the author's flow of thought. And, and that's what literary context is all about. Here is the most important rule of Bible study, and that is that context determines meaning. The context around a given verse or passage of Scripture determines the meaning of that passage of Scripture. Uh, one of the mottos of Ozark Christian College, at least when I was there, is this, context is king. Uh, it is the number one uh, rule, number one principle when it comes to uh, studying the Bible, both literary context, uh, that is the words and stuff around a passage, and then historical context. So the, uh, the background for what is being written, what's, what's happening in people's lives as they write these words. And, and next week, you're going to hear Rachel talk to you about historical context. Uh, it's been said that you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And uh, that is only true if you disregard the context. So it is possible to take a verse, kind of pull it out of a text, and then, uh, and then twist it or use it to kind of say whatever you want. You can find the words in the Psalms. You could find the words, there is no God, right? And you could pull that out and you could say, look, the Bible says there is no God. But, but the only reason you're able to find that is because you've pulled it out of context where it actually says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this is why context becomes really important. Uh, the bad news is this, that this, this principle is easily ignored, it is so easy to overlook the idea of reading in context, partially because of the way our Bible comes to us. And that is, it comes to us in uh, basically broken up in chapters and verses. Uh, and so it's easy for us as we read to kind of read each little verse as its own self-contained unit of thought, when the truth is that's not how it was originally written. And, and each of those verses is part of a larger flow of thought that kind of flows together to make a statement. Same with the chapters. We can read chapter one, and then we get to the end of it, and we think, oh, well, I guess Paul must be done with that point. Now he's moving to a different point. That, that might be true. Or, or he may have meant for those two things to run together. Chapter and verse divisions were not in our Bible for a long time. Chapters were not added to the Bible until the 13th century. And verses were not added to the Bible until the 16th century. So when it was written, it was not meant to be thought of as a bunch of split up little thoughts. Um, it's all meant to be kind of ran together. And so that's important for us to kind of grasp. Uh, many of the ways we try to memorize verses is to put them on coffee cups or calendars, which is a great thing, or to put them on sticky notes around our house, which is a great thing. And I, I would encourage you to do that. Um, but of course, when we put a sticky note on our mirror, we can't fit all of John chapter 3 on there. We can only fit John 3.16 on there. And, and it's, it's just good to recognize, man, when we take a verse out of the whole chapter, there may be something we're actually missing to it in our, our means of trying to study or memorize things. It's just helpful to keep that in mind. So the bad news is that this principle is easy to ignore. The good news is that it is the most simple to follow. Uh, following and reading in context. It doesn't require uh, Bible degrees or seminary degrees. It doesn't require commentaries or other resources. All you got to do 
is just read the paragraph on one side of your text and read the paragraph on the other and try to make connections. That's, that's the good news here. So what specifically do we mean when we say literary context? Uh, this is a really basic definition, but, but it's just good to just kind of say it so we're, we're all on the same page. Literary context is the words, sentences, and paragraphs surrounding a specific passage. And it's helpful when we think about literary context to think in terms of concentric circles. Uh, so uh, in the classroom, I had the whiteboard there and I was able to draw just a series of seven concentric circles. And at the very center circle, you have the sentence. So when you're reading the Bible, you're reading a sentence and you try to figure out what does that sentence mean? Um, well, you're going to be able to better understand that if you take one step out and the next circle is paragraph. So every sentence fits into a paragraph. Outside of paragraphs, you have, uh, and this is kind of a technical term, uh, you don't have to know it, but you know, if you want to sound smart and fancy, a uh, term scholars will use is a pericope. Uh, pericope is just from the Greek to mean like cut around, so a section cut out. A pericope is a self-contained unit of text forming one coherent thought. All right, so a pericope, it could be one paragraph, it could be three or four paragraphs. Uh, that are kind of all there together and all flowing to make one form of argument. That's circle uh, three. And then circle four becomes a chapter. So you read a verse, Philippians 4.13, for example, which we'll get to in a minute. You can read that in its paragraph, and then you can widen it out into the pericope, and then you can read all of chapter four. And then next is the book. So that would be Philippians itself. Uh, which is uh, good to know, especially if we can be aware of the, the purpose of that book. Sometimes the writer themselves will, will give in their book, hey, this is the reason why I'm writing. Uh, a really famous example is John 20, 31, where John says, Jesus did many things that could have been written down, but these specific things, I wrote these specific things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so if I'm reading verses of John in the larger context, I'm remembering that, that every verse in John is aiming towards the, the big purpose of John, which is uh, that, that you would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Uh, when you step outside of the book to circle six, uh, testament is our next largest thing. So to read something uh, in light of the, the way the whole Testament, New Testament or Old Testament, whichever it's in, speaks about a given, con uh, a given subject. And then the last circle is just the Bible itself. And the truth is, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it is very interconnected and, and that different ideas come up multiple times in Scripture. And so if I want to read an idea, a verse on, say, righteousness in Romans, I can look at that word righteousness. I could get on BibleGateway.com. This is called Parallel Passages. And I would just type in the word righteousness and, and then watch every verse that comes up with the word righteousness in it. And those are parallel passages, passages that talk about the same thing, and they give me a larger biblical context for what that word righteousness means. Uh, I said this uh, the other night, it, it sounds kind of dumb, but I think there's something that's really true about it. The more you understand the Bible, the more you'll be able to understand the Bible. 
And that is that the more you know, the more you're learning, the more you're listening to sermons and studying, the more, the more often when you hear a different idea presented, you're going to be able to start over time. It, it takes some time, but over time you'll be in the, to start making connections with other parts of the Bible. Oh, this is what the Bible says about righteousness over here. And so now I can kind of see how that builds on what it says in Romans 3 about righteousness. So uh, that's context thought of in concentric circles. Now, what what we did next in class is we took a minute to practice some small-scale contextual reading. And so I gave them a few different verses, Philippians 4.13, and then Matthew 18, 20, and I had them, uh, we read that verse out loud, and then I had them kind of come together and talk a little bit about what those verses mean once they were read in context. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Philippians 4.13, says this, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4.13. And, and now what I want to do is I want to read to you from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 16. And, and uh, as I read this, I want you to think, what is the, the larger point of this passage? Not, not, don't think yet, what does Philippians 4.13 mean? First, just ask, what is Paul talking about, kind of in general, in this passage? So I'll read it out to you. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me." Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts from my need several times. So this is the passage that we read together. I split them up into groups to talk about that and what it means. And then we came back together to, uh, to talk through those. And that is actually where the recording picks up. So I'm going to hand you off to our session that took place this last Wednesday. Okay. So real quick. Okay. Tell me what is the subject of this, of this section of this paragraph or this pericope? What is, what's the big idea that Paul's talking about here to the Philippians? Okay, what's the help and love that they've given him? He says care for the care that you gave me, but we can go down to the bottom of that passage and by the context, we can know what, it, what is he specifically talking about? His, his travels. Okay, travels, but they've been doing what for him while he's been traveling? Giving and receiving. They've been sending money to him. As he's been, he's a missionary who's working and in need of support, and they have given him money, and he's grateful for that. He says, I'm, I'm so thankful that you did that for me, all right? So the idea is he's talking to them about money, but he says in there, but it's okay if you, if you weren't able to get it to me. And why is it okay if, if they weren't able to get money to him? Partly because of what Enoch just said. What did he just say? What did you say again? He learned of facing hunger. 
Okay, listen, so that's what he says in verse 11. So he says, man, I'm grateful that you sent this, but I don't say that out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. Here's the secret. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So when we see this, what Paul is saying is actually not, I am able to get a million dollars through what Jesus has given me. What he's saying is if I have a million dollars or if I have zero, Jesus is enough for me. He keeps me sustained. He makes me content. This is not about you can get that job promotion. You can win that championship. You can get the GPA. What this is is even if you don't get that job promotion, You can sustain yourself through those. You can make it through those. You can be content because Jesus is better than the job promotion. And you can face all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul goes, I can can go hungry out here on the mission field if I got to because Jesus will sustain me even as I'm doing these things. So the idea he's talking about, whether or not they have the ability to give him money, and, and he's grateful for it. But I know the secret of being content even if I don't get money. And the secret is I can do all things. I can face anything through Jesus Christ who gives me strength, which is really cool. Okay, let's do another one real quick. Matthew 18, 20. Here's the passage. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. This is when you hear a fair amount with like Bible studies or prayer stuff. Uh, Hey, there may not be a lot of us, but the good news is where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus is with us, and so we can pray to him. He has come and given his presence because all we need is two or three for that. Uh, but I don't think that's actually what Jesus is getting at when he says those words. Let's go to Matthew 18 real quick. Somebody want to read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. All right, read it for us, Austin, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so that's the last verse. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Before we answer what that means, what is this, what is this text about? What is Jesus talking about? Just big picture in this. You don't have to do any major interpretation here. Just what's he talking about here? Say that again. Rebuking, okay, rebuking, yes, okay. Uh, how, how else might you say it? That's, that's a good one. That's a good way to say it. Say that again. Reconciliation, okay. Redemption. Confrontation. Church discipline, okay. So these, all these things, it is how do you deal with sin in the church? How do you deal with sin in the church? And Jesus says, let me tell you how you deal with sin in the church. See, if your brother sins against you, the first thing you do is you go to them and you confront them on that. And if they refuse to repent, okay, you don't just be done or you don't just say whatever. You go and get 
uh, uh, someone else, two or three witnesses, so that it's not just your word against theirs and someone can actually establish, no, they're actually in the wrong. It's not just your opinion here, okay? And if they still refuse to repent in that, then you go tell it to the church. That is, you bring it before the church leadership. You bring it before uh, other brothers and sisters, and, and then they pronounce it. And if, and if they res- refuse to repent at that point, actually, he says, you, the, the, the technical term we use is excommunicate them. You remove them from fellowship. And it's not because you don't like them. It's not because you hate them. It's actually because the, the goal is that as you do that, it will win them back, Jesus says. That's your goal, is to win them back in. And you want them to know, hey, we don't act like this when we follow Jesus. We don't just continue in our sin unrepentant. And so you pronounce together. The church comes together and pronounces, this person is no longer a member. As, as long as they continue to live in sin, they're not in fellowship with us if they, if they don't repent. We all live in sin. The question is whether or not a person is repenting or whether they're embracing their sin. Okay, so it's not just get rid of anybody who sins. We'd all have to be gotten rid of at that point, right? Like we'd all just kick everybody out and the last person would have to kick himself out. Okay, um, but no, it's not about who sins. It's about who chooses to embrace their sin rather than repenting of it. If someone does it, you remove them from fellowship. And then Jesus says these words, for I tell you, when two or three of you gather together in my name, there am I with you. So what are the two or three gathering together to do in this moment? Yes, to confront this person and to make a pronouncement about the sin that they're walking in. And, and the fact, and, and, and to say, like, you're not, in, you're not in this. You're not a part of this. Jesus says, when the church comes together to enact church discipline, even if it's some little rinky-dink church with just a few people that doesn't have any authority or power in this world, when they come together to make a statement about a brother in Christ who is sinning and turning against Jesus, Jesus says, they've got me on their side. I'm with them. My presence is with them in those things, right? So this isn't a verse about, hey, if we've got to do a prayer meeting, um, if we can get two or three of us together, then Jesus is going to join too, right? And we, we kind of know that, right? Because it's not like if Rachel and I were going to get together to pray and she doesn't show up, then Jesus is like, well, I'm not coming either then, okay? <laughs> if it's just you, I only come when there's two or three, right? Like we, we kind of know that. But, but because this verse gets pulled out of context, that's how we read it. It's not talking about Jesus coming to our prayer meetings. It's talking about Jesus agreeing with us when we make hard and difficult decisions that are in line with what he wants from us. Okay, uh, last one, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, I'll just read it. We won't, we won't spend a lot of time talking about it. First uh, Peter 5, 7 is one that is semi-famous. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. A beautiful verse. Um, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. But look at the verses leading uh, up to those verses. Uh, 5... 5.7 says, sorry, my, my eyes are getting bad here. All right. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, Humble yourselves under God by casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. So this idea of cast your cares on God and trust in him is not just a verse for like worrying anxiety. It's actually also a verse about pride. Because what he's saying is when you worry and refuse to trust God, that's an act of anti-humility. 
That's an act of pride that says, I've got to take care of everything. I'm in charge, and if I can't keep it together, then life is going to fall apart. Peter says, that's prideful. Humble yourself and trust in God and not in yourself. So when I worry all the time and I can't trust him to do things, I'm not humbling myself. I'm, I'm going against what God wants. And it's, it's cool to see the way these verses tie themselves together when we read in context. Okay, let's talk about how to identify surrounding context or how to do um, like large, where's my stuff? Okay, how to, how to read through like large scale context, literary context. Uh, that is reading bigger chunks of scripture next to each other, not just kind of a couple verses next to each other. If you're reading through, say, a chapter of the Bible, uh, Philippians 2, which if we got time, we'll try to dig into here in a second. If you're reading through Philippians 2, um, what you want to do to be able to kind of understand that together is first, number one, identify how the chapter, the book of the chapter, is divided into paragraphs or sections. Okay, so look at how it's divided up. And you're going to kind of group these into different paragraphs and sections. Uh, to, to figure out how it's divided up, what you're going to do is you're going to look for changes in the text that are clues that the flow of thought is shifting a little bit, right? So you're going to look for connecting words that we talked about last week. Therefore. So when I see the word therefore, I mean, oh, he's shifting a little bit. Now, the thought that he's, the thought that he's going into, that's connected to the thought that he just made because he said therefore, but he's shifting gears just a little bit and, and go in a little different direction. So I'll put these into two separate thoughts that are connected with each other. Okay. So therefore, or and, or but, uh, any of those things, a change in genre. So when, when you read in Luke and you're, you're reading like a narrative, like a story, Jesus went here, Jesus did that, Jesus healed this person. And then all of a sudden Jesus starts teaching in a parable. That's a different kind of literature. That's a different genre. And so we know, oh, here's a switch. We just went from narrative to story of teaching form. So we just went from history to a parable or a change of setting, like a different place or a change of topic. Those are all signs. Uh, one of the ways to kind of look for how the text is broken up is to look at different translations or versions. So like where the paragraphs are broken up in your Bible, once again, that's not how it was in the original text, okay? In the original Greek, uh, in the New Testament, all of the words just rang together, like one right on top of each other. Actually, in the original, there wasn't even space between words, right? But, but they didn't have space between the sentences and paragraphs. They were all just together. And so when you see different paragraphs broken up or these headings in here, those are just decisions that the interpreters, that the translators have made. They've just gone, I think that this begins a new thought, so we're going to make this a new paragraph. But if you look at, like this is the CSB, if you look at the CSB and the ESV and the NIV, they might all have three different ways of breaking up the text uh, based on how they see the, the flow of thought. Or they may all completely agree, which is a good indication, yep, that's probably how I should break this up because all the translators agree. This verse begins a new paragraph. I can see it in ESV, CSB, NIV. That's probably how I should break that up. So the first thing you'll do is break those up into different groups. Second thing you do, summarize the main idea of each section. So what I'm doing is essentially I'm trying to like break these paragraphs up into different thoughts and I'm trying to figure out how they each connect to each other. And so when I break up say verses one through four and then I've got five through six here and then I've got 
seven through 10 here and 11 through 12. What I'll do actually, these would actually be bigger because we're talking about paragraphs. So it'd be more like one through 12 and 12 through 15 and 15 through 22. So they would be bigger sections of scripture. But when I've got them broken up into thoughts, the next thing I do is I'm gonna try to summarize what this paragraph says in just a really short, like a dozen words or less. 12 where I'm just gonna basically give like a summary, kind of what we did when we, when we did the, the Matthew 18 section. What is he saying here? Oh, he's dealing with how to confront a believer in sin. So that's kind of, um, I, we just summarized a whole paragraph in a few words there. That's what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to summarize the paragraphs into a short, cohesive thought, a dozen words or less. Uh, don't get too bogged down in the details at this point. Don't try to figure out the minutia of what every little word means. You just want the big picture. What is this little section about? What is this saying? Okay. Um, and using the, the tools that Scott gave you last week, uh, the observation, looking for repeated words, looking for connecting words, looking for um, locations and all that stuff, that's going to help you get an idea of each little section there and break down. And then the last is this. Ask how this particular passage relates to the surrounding sections. So if I'm trying to understand this little paragraph, this little section here, again, pretend this is bigger than two verses. If I'm trying to understand this paragraph, what I want to ask is how does this relate to this and how does it relate to this? And the more I can understand how it relates to these two things here, the better I'll understand what it actually means and the flow of the author's thought. When I can see how they actually flow into each other, each idea flows into the next. Okay, um, so questions like, you're asking questions like, how does this build on the previous section and feed into the next one? What would happen if we removed this section from the book? So if I just took this out, how would that change the meaning of this book? Uh, why did the author choose to place this section here and nowhere else? Like he could have put it anywhere. Why did he choose to put it in this spot? He probably put it here for a specific reason because he's trying to get something across to us by it. Um, those are important questions. I love this, uh, this quote from uh, these guys, Duvall and Hayes. They wrote a book called Grasping God's Word. It says, if you do nothing else, Besides, read what comes before and what comes after your passage, you will eliminate 75% of all interpretive mistakes. Okay? If you'll do nothing else but just, but, uh, but just kind of see what comes before and after your passage and try to make them flow together, you'll eliminate a lot of the misinterpretations. So let me give you uh, just like a, a quick couple examples of this, right? So you've got, um, in 1 Corinthians, we were studying this last year, a couple years ago at the table, and there's this section, 12 through 13, 14, okay? So you have 1 Corinthians 12. And if you were to look at that, what you would see is that that section of Scripture is all about spiritual gifts. And specifically, he kind of gets into like tongues, uh, the gifts that are like impressive and flashy and that everybody wants, right? And then if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, or sorry, 14, what you see is that that whole section is about gifts, and specifically tongues and the special flashy gifts that everyone is impressed with. Okay, so that's what both 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are, are, are both about. The question is, why are they not together? Why are they split up? And why, why would Paul break his train of thought 
with a whole new passage, 1 Corinthians 13, which is about what? It's a famous, one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Love. Love. Okay? And it's a passage that we like to read at, at weddings and we like to do all these things, right? Uh, the, the famous love passage. But that section of Scripture, we ask this question, why did the author put it here and nowhere else? Why didn't he wait to finish his thoughts about gifts in 14 and then switch the order here? The reason why is because Paul is making a point about spiritual gifts, and that is that any talent or gift that God has given you is not for you and your own benefit. That he gave that to you for the benefit of others, and every one of our gifts is meant to be used in love, otherwise it is not being used properly. That all of what I have from God is meant to be used for my brothers and sisters, for other things. And so Paul will stop mid-thought, it feels like, as he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he goes on what just looks like this rant about this random, it seems like at first, random rant about love. And then he goes back to gifts. That's on purpose. These thoughts are flowing together. They're meant to be connected. Okay? Um, Okay, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to give you, I, I'm going to, I gave you Philippians 2 for you to look at, okay? You can, you can read that through. Um, okay, yep, you're going to read that through later by yourself. You can do that by yourself. I'm sorry, um, but I'm going to show you one other real quick, okay? This is one of my favorites um, when I got to see this, okay? If you want to go to Mark 4 real quick. There's a section, a series of stories about Jesus that takes place starting at the end of Mark 4. Okay. Uh, five. Okay. And these are stories you've probably heard if you've been in Sunday school or anything like that. You've probably heard most of them. Uh, but they all string, I think, together on purpose. Okay. And then Mark. 5, 21 to 24, and okay. We're not going to read through all of them. You can kind of look at them and, and get an idea, okay, as, as you kind of read through some of those together or as you, as you kind of scan over. But basically they go like this. There's four stories that put that all end up back to back. And the first one is the story of Jesus being out on the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And as they're there, a storm rises up over uh, the boat and it begins to like take over and almost capsize the boat. Jesus is sleeping in the boat, I believe, in this story. And they come wake him up. They're like, don't you care if we drown? And he stands up and he calms the storm and everything just stops. And it says at the very end of that passage, Mark 4, verse, uh, verse 40, this is Jesus talking to them. He said, then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So Jesus uh, calms the storm here, okay? And then they land. They land in this region called the Decapolis. And this man comes up who's filled with all these demons. And he's this, this guy in it. And, and uh, Mark clarifies, this is a very strong man. No one has been able to stop him. They've bound him up with chains. They've tried to like keep him outside of all these things, um, but no one can bind him. He's too strong. He's too powerful. And these demons are causing him to run wild. He runs up to Jesus and he starts calling out and says, what have you come here for? What are you here to do with me? And Jesus casts out the demons from him. 
Okay, and and he casts him out. And then all of a sudden, when the people come, they see this man sitting there in his right mind. Uh, Verse 15, Mark 5, verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Okay, and so they, they make Jesus leave. They're like, we don't know what kind of power there is in you. It's too much for us. It's kind of scary. Please go. And so Jesus leaves after uh, casting out demons. Okay? And then he goes and he lands on another, he goes ashore uh, another place, and there are these two overlapping stories, okay? So uh, one is, is when he gets there in verses 21, 24, this synagogue leader comes to him and says, my daughter is sick and she's dying. Will you please come help help her. Please come save her if there's anything you can do. And Jesus starts to go, but there's this massive crowd around him and they're pressing in. And as he moves, there's this story of this woman who's suffered from internal bleeding all her life. And she's not been able to stop that. And she's consulted doctors and nothing has been able to stop her sickness. Nothing can stop her sickness. And she thinks in her mind, if I can just touch Jesus' robe, then I'll be healed. And that's what she does. She touches him. And as soon as that happens, he feels the power go out of him. And she's healed. And he turns to her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And so uh, Jesus heals sickness. Okay, and then it moves back to this story with the daughter because as he's talking to this woman, a servant of the synagogue leader comes up to him and says, sir, I'm so sorry, but your daughter's died. Don't don't bother the teacher anymore. There's no sense in bringing him because she's already passed. And Jesus hears these words and he turns to the guy and he says, do not be afraid, have faith. Do not be afraid. Have faith. And he goes, and when he goes into this room, everyone's crying. And he goes, why are you crying? She's just sleeping. And they all laugh. And then he brings the mom and dad up, and he brings Peter and James and John, I believe. And he says to this girl, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she gets up and walks out of that room alive, and everyone is astonished. So Jesus raises the dead. Now, each of these stories is really pretty cool in and of themselves. They're all pretty amazing. But actually, if you're reading through and you're looking, you'll see that there are themes that run all the way through. Um, Over and over again, the words for like afraid or terrorized or or terrified or whatever keeps coming up. uh, And the word faith keeps coming up. Uh, Or don't be afraid, just believe. Or Jesus says, "Why, why were you so afraid? Why didn't you have faith? Where's your faith? Um, Or he says to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. And so we see that all these stories are actually interweaving together. And when we string them together, we see this really cool thing. And that is we learn that Jesus is the kind of person who has authority over the storm. Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. Jesus has authority over sickness that no doctors can heal. Jesus has authority over death itself. And the big picture answer is this. Jesus has authority over everything. There is nothing Jesus does not have authority over. Even demon-possessed men that no one else can control or stop, Jesus controls and stops. Even storms that no one has the ability to stop, Jesus stops. Even sicknesses that no doctors can heal, Jesus heals. And even death that everyone laughs at when someone says she's just asleep because they know there's nothing that can be done. Jesus does something. And so what Mark is doing is he's stringing together these pictures of Jesus to say, look at who this man is. 
And when you look at this man, you've got two choices. Fear or faith? Will you, will you be afraid of the things around you or will you be afraid of the man and try and push him away because you don't know what to do with him? Or will you choose to have faith in this person who's, who is over all of these things? Now there's one other really cool thing and that is that in, in almost each one of these you see the word amazed or astonished comes up. And in the very next, at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, Jesus goes to Nazareth and people won't come to him for healing and they don't trust him and they don't believe in him. And then Mark switches it and it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. It says, and Jesus was astonished at, does anybody know? Their lack of faith. And so it's, look at all that Jesus can do. You should have faith. You want to know the one thing that blows Jesus' mind? When people can't believe in him. When people can't have faith in a man who does all of these things because he's more than just a man. And that's what Mark is hinting at. This is the way that the writers will string together stories or paragraphs to be able to make a larger point. And when we can see it all weaved together, we get to, we get to see God's word open up to us in a greater level of, of riches that is just beautiful and amazing. Now, you've got the Philippians 2 passage there, and uh, I regret that we can't go through it. Here's what I want to kind of have you just try to do when you go home tonight or whatever. Read through those, and each, it's already kind of broken up for you by paragraph. And so what I'd like you to do is just tonight summarize in like a few words, in, in a dozen words or whatever, what, each, what you think each of those paragraphs are saying, and then see if you can kind of see how does each paragraph kind of feed into the next paragraph? How does each idea feed into the next idea? Why does Paul stop and talk about his traveling companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus, right, right in the middle of all this talk about humility and Jesus and all of these things? And, and see if you can kind of figure out and answer that question. Um, will be a lot of fun for you. Okay, um, we're going to wrap up here. If you've got questions, I would love to talk with you. Listen, what, what we want from this summer is not for you to walk away going, oh man, that's really cool what Scott knows. And that's really cool what Rachel can do. And that's really cool what Drew can figure out. What we want you to be able to do is walk away going, I, it might take me a little bit, but, but I think this is possible for me. I can read one paragraph and then read the paragraph before and after. I can make connections. We want you to know that this is doable for you, that you can read and understand God's word and see what he wants to say to you. And if it, if it feels like it's overwhelming for you, and man, I can't do that, A, that's on me. I'm probably messing up because I don't want you to feel that way. And B, give it time. And, and it may kind of, sometimes it feels like that at the beginning when we read the Bible and we're trying to figure out how to do it. It can feel like that. Stay at it. The more you understand the Bible, the more you'll be able to understand the Bible. The more you practice these things, these little things, the better you get at them and the more God's word begins to open up to you in new ways. Let me pray and then we'll wrap up. Dear God, I'm just going to stop and thank you for Jesus, uh, who, is, who is this big as your Bible describes him, as your word describes him. And I pray that you would help us to be uh, the kind of people who do not live our lives in fear. Um, but instead live our lives in faith of Jesus and all that he is. And, and that even in times of difficulty, you would help us to see, uh, help us to truly grasp this idea that we can do all things through Jesus who gives us strength because he's enough and he sustains us in good times and bad. I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room and for those who may not know you yet, that you would open our eyes to these truths. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.